Hey everybody, just a couple of announcements before we get into today's episode. We got a great guest today and I know you're going to love our conversation because it's going to help you learn how to help your child learn what they need to know in life. I can't think of much more important than that. A couple of things about the episode. First of all, the audio you'll notice changes kind of midway because we lose our Skype connection so we end up talking on cell phones for the rest of the episode. So you'll probably notice that our, you know, our, the sound changes a little bit. It works, but it's, it's a little different. I just wanted to point it out to you all. Uh, and also another piece of really good news in this episode, while we recorded this episode, I still thought that what I had was an autoimmune disease. And the really super good news about that is that it looks like it, it's, it's that idea that it is an autoimmune disease is receding. Uh, I've, I, my health is is steadily, slowly but steadily improving, and it's doing so in a way that makes it look like maybe this is not an autoimmune problem. Wouldn't that be awesome? So anyway, uh, I just wanted to share that with you about the episode as well. You'll hear me say autoimmune disorder or autoimmune disease, but it looks like maybe not. I'm I'm getting better, so that's so wonderful. And the other thing I wanted to share before we got going today was we've had a couple of reviews on iTunes for the We Turned Out Okay podcast. And I wanted to read them out and give shout outs because reviews are super special. And I know when I get a good review, it means that I'm doing something right and I'm helping people. So I really wanted to give a shout out to these to, you know, some of these reviews and would ask you if you submit a review on iTunes and, you know, I, I'd love to give you a shout out on the show, read it out, read it out loud, just like I'm going to do here. So the first one is from Magic3461, and they say, more please, that's the title, more please, exclamation point. And then we have, Karen, your enthusiasm is infectious and you teach some great life lessons. I can't wait to hear more. Well, thank you so much, Magic. That's a wonderful encouragement. And I, I hope to give you more. Number two is by Hermit Dude, who says, great podcast. Thank you so much for this podcast. Keep making them. And Hermit Dude, that smiley face at the end just says it all. Thank you so much for your great reviews. And uh, everybody, I really hope that today's episode helps you enjoy life with your kids a little bit more and maybe even get a hint of the big picture that's coming up. So here we go. Enjoy the show. We turned out okay. The modern parent's guide to old school parenting. I'm gonna hang upside down from the swing set. Welcome to We Turned Out Okay with host Karen Locke Cole. I wanna climb to the top of that tree. And now, here's your host, Karen Locke-Cole. Today, my guest is in the middle of a varied and successful career. He has won the Ralph J. Gleason Award for Best Music Book. He was nominated for a Grammy in 2003. He was named Literary Artist of 2013 for Rockland County, New York. He produced a documentary about Hurricane Katrina, and to my knowledge, he's written at least 10 books about all different kinds of subjects, including a forthcoming book of poems called The Names of Birds, which I really look forward to asking him about during today's show. In 2009, he wrote what has turned out to be one of my favorite books about how kids learn what they need to know. If you want to read something that will help you make decisions every day about your child's education, you need this book, How Lincoln Learned to Read. 
I'm so excited today because I get to interview this book's author. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Daniel Wolf. What an intro. It's a a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome, welcome. So in rereading the book recently, I, I, I really got goosebumps from the prologue and the epilogue. And I just, if it's okay with you, I'd love to read a couple of sentences because they just set up the purpose of the whole book. Sure. All right. So you start off with, say we start at the founding of the Republic and pick an American who helps define how we think of ourselves, helps define what and how we've learned. Ask the question, what part of your education was useful and what not? Maybe these stories will also build on each other and form a kind of history, how we've defined and redefined knowledge how we've decided who should have access to which knowledge and why, how we've tried to perpetuate it to pass it on. How do we learn what we need to know? So that's the prologue. And now I'm going to actually go to the book, which you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll hear like the pages of the book. The, the, the part that just really w- just hit home for me was this at the end. The story that all these stories tell is of people trying to find their way to knowledge, trying to find what they'll need to know. We add our history to the ones we've already heard, And then we come back to the question of how to prepare for the future. We listen for what's next. That sound in the distance, kids' voices. Imagine a playground at dusk. It just, it just, I mean, it makes you think like, what do you need to know and and how do you learn it? Would would you say that that's the point of the book? Oh, absolutely. And the playground at dusk is maybe poeticized a little, but actual. Oh, yeah. yeah, when I when my kids were growing up, we would meet this group of parents who were concerned about the public schools in the playground behind the school um, when everybody else had left and kind of talk through what was happening to our kids and what what were they learning and why and what were we supposed to do, you know. So so some of it is just you know reporting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Interestingly, I'm getting an echo now. Are you getting an echo? No, I don't hear an echo. Okay. Well, not, and now it's gone. Maybe it was this little Skype thing. <laughs> All right. So, um, your husband's in charge. I know, I know. And he, he, you know, it's funny as I set this up on a Sunday and he is off playing laser tag with our boys. <laughs> so that uh, was, that was my question. Uh, was going to be my question. How old are your kids? My kids now are not kids. They're, they're uh, adults. They're, yeah. One is 28 and one is 25. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of, I was thinking about before, as I was getting ready for this interview, I was thinking about it. They're both freelancers. Um, the, the eldest one is an actor and the young one is a musician and a record producer. And um, since I'm a freelancer, you know, I wondered if that sort of biased me in terms of this book and in terms of what I think about education. But I also realized talking to 20 and 30 year olds that lots and lots of people are freelancers now that the era when public education knew what you were going to do as a grown-up and therefore could prepare you to work on henry ford's assembly line or whatever it was are really gone yeah that era is over that era is over and lots of kids i mean yours will be hitting it soon sort of have to improvise you know it's a skill they better learn how to do because there's not a job for the rest of your life probably in a you know with a guaranteed income yeah i would say that that is that i mean that is gone i think my husband has one of the last vested pensions in the country (laughs) (laughs) there you go good for him yeah yeah exactly and yet we still worry we still almost don't trust it because you hear about like enron and other things like that i mean you know we one of the one of the most i think scariest things 
for us in these last years where I've had this autoimmune disorder has been, you know, what if, what if his job goes south? And then, and then he, you know, he's not, doesn't have a job. I am pretty much unable to, to work. And, and what do we do then? But I mean, we're, I think we're feeling a little bit more hopeful because of this kind of freelancing life that, that homeschooling really is. Uh, You know, I guess the, the question I'm asking is how do you, if the, if part of what education is about is trying to prepare your kids for the future, uh, it doesn't do any good to prepare them for a future that doesn't exist. You you kind of, you know, I don't know how you do this, but you kind of want them to know how to land on their feet when the pension disappears or whatever it is. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, and you need to be able to help them kind of almost by backing away, I guess. I mean, I feel like in... One of the reasons I started this is because I see this podcast, this particular podcast is because I see so many parents who who just hover and they're like afraid to back away. You know, they're afraid to let their kids fall down or 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 uh, be out of their sight on the playground for a minute. There's such a different mentality nowadays about what is safe and what is not safe. And 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 because of that, I feel like we're 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 just hovering over kids. We're afraid to let them be creative, make mistakes, fall down, screw up. and uh... Well, one of the interesting things for me about this book was since it goes from Ben Franklin through Elvis Presley and mm-hmm. sort of looks at all of their educations, that as the, as the sort of country got civilized and the frontier disappeared, you began to get this kind of regimented feel of, okay, now we know what we're doing and we can prepare our kids for it. And, uh, you know, whether it was getting them ready to work in the cotton mills outside of Boston or, um, I don't know, getting them ready to work again at Henry Ford's uh, assembly line, you had a sense that, okay, we know what the jobs are and so on. Yeah. Right now is much more like the beginning of the country <laughs> in a way. Yes. Which is that you, which is that you kind of go, um, I don't know what's going to happen. We're entering a new world. What kind of basic skills do you need? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm sympathetic with parents hovering over their kids only because I think it comes out of fear. Yeah. And, oh, I'm and, very sympathetic as well. I don't mean to belittle this. I did it. I mean, it's so right. hard not to. It's scary. Right. And they're and they're right to be scared. That is that you there are no guarantees, and we, you know, there was a time there in the sort of middle of the 20th century when people thought they had a guarantee. Yes. There was, there was a good job out there for you. Yeah. Yeah. And you get like disapproval if you. From from parents, for instance, like I have a brother who who was incredibly smart. And, and I feel like my, my folks kind of spent some of their time when he was in his 20s thinking, God, he's wasting his life. Like he's just wasting his life. He could be doing so much. And mm-hmm. and, and, you know, he went his own way and he he actually, you know, he's got a great life. And it's it's quite conventional, um, you know, in that he's, he goes to a job every day and he's right. he's very happily married and that kind of thing. But I think it. When he was younger, and they were just like, "What is he? How is he going to turn out? He's never going to, you know, he's got such gifts and he's not using them," kind of a thing. Right. Um, so our podcast is organized into four themes, and what I love about your book is that it could fit in any one. We got unplanned adventures, which makes me think of—I think of my autoimmune disorder as an unplanned adventure, and I have learned a lot from it. And I think of so in your book, I think of Helen Keller. You know, she. That was an unplanned adventure, and she learned a lot from from her adventure, right? Of not being able to see or hear or speak. 
Um, risky business, which is about kind of taking, taking risks, um, kind of going out on your own or, or, or trying to be creative in some way, which uh, I actually kind of think of, um, John F. Kennedy, because because he he was such a like he got into trouble at school. He was a troublemaker, you know, and he he just never did what his parents wanted him to do. That was my impression. I haven't reread that chapter recently. Am I right on that? No, I think that's right. I think he was uh, he was kind of rich and bored. Was yeah. Part of, yeah, know? exactly. And so I you know I think for him it if he didn't have risky business it was business as usual and he didn't want that. Yeah, that was not happening for him definitely. <laughs> and then we have kids through the ages which I think of in two ways as developmental milestones, you know, so parents can I'm I'm I have actually already had an, an like an early intervention therapist on and I'm I'm hoping to talk to some other just educators about like about milestones in a child's development. But the other thing about kids through the ages is I think it could be kids in history. You know, like like imagining Ben Franklin at 10 years old taking a tour of Boston with his dad. Right. You know, um, and then the third, uh, the fourth one, sorry, is the three R's, reading, writing and arithmetic. And, and that's that one. Again, it could be so many of them. But the ones that, that that really spoke to for me were Ben Franklin and Rachel Carson. And I wondered if maybe uh, I could ask you to start with Ben and then move on to Rachel, kind of sharing with our listeners about their childhoods and how their upbringings influenced their interaction with literacy and their ideas about the written word. Sure. Um, you know, Ben Franklin was a place to start this book because he's a founding father, as we say, but also because in a lot of ways he set the model for, I think, how Americans think about education, which is in a complicated way, I think, in that at the same time that we value learning and think it's important to know something, um, we don't really trust it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, so if you're um, Bill Clinton and you have a Rhodes scholarship or whatever he got and, you know, are an educated man, the way to get elected is to be all homey and folky. Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just Bill Clinton from Arkansas. You know, and the master of this was Abraham Lincoln, who yeah. was an educated lawyer and, you know, liked to tell dirty stories because then he was just a regular guy. <laughs> Apparently he had the greatest dirty stories of anyone. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I hear that, of course, that none of them are written down, so it's a little hard to oh, confirm that. But so Ben Franklin, you know, his, um, he, growing up, he was the 10th kid in a big family in Boston. This is you know, obviously before the United States of America is America. It's a colony. Um, and his father is a tradesperson who is uh, uh, making candles and soap in the house. And Ben's going to be the educated kid um, because he can read really quickly. And he says he can't remember in his autobiography. He can't remember when he couldn't read. That's right. And what I sort of get from that is he was in a household where everyone else was reading. Uh, and he um, sort of absorbed it by osmosis. It just came to him um, so that... Uh, you know, that was his parents' signal that, okay, this is the kid who's going to go far and be a whatever, a bigwig. Yeah. And what, you know, excuse me, one second. I have to let a cat in the door. Oh, sorry. Oh, there we go. Uh, and they wanted him to be a minister. They had him picked out for the ministry, right? For, for, yeah. to be a minister. Yeah. The route, the route in those days was you went to uh, Boston Latin, which is the elementary school, and then you went to Harvard. And something like half or more of the people who graduated from Harvard ended up ministers. Mm -hmm. And it was, 
you know, building on your theme, it was the, the joke was it was reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion. Mm-hmm. They were all entwined. And, and, and he, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting writing this book and thinking about the education of people because it tends to be what you skip over in a biography. They want to get to when the guy or the gal becomes famous. But you read this stuff, and, and Franklin, in almost an aside in his autobiography, says he did one year in this elementary school and then left. <laughs> and you kind of go, what do you mean you left, Ben? What, what was that about? And all he'll say is that uh, he was a leader, and he doesn't say troublemaker, but you get the feeling that he didn't get along <laughs> with his either his teachers or his fellow students. It's not clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so he lasted a year and then spent another year in what was called a reading school where he learned um, how to read and write again. And that was all his formal schooling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from then on, it was him, what he called a self-education. And again, I think as Americans, not just because of Ben Franklin, but also because of how we pioneered the country and and and. Uh, had to sort of invent ourselves, we, that's what we value, is self-education. We think in a lot of ways that's the thing that we go, yeah, that proves you're really, you know, a man or a woman, is that you're, you didn't just copy down what somebody else said, you educated yourself. Yeah. You know, and I confess I share those values, and I think, you know, I owe some of them to, to Franklin probably. Yeah, yeah, going your own way, kind of. Yeah. So he then went on, I mean, I'll try to do this quickly because um, you can read the book if you want. <laughs> um, but, you know, he then, the the main mode of education at the time was to um, work for an artisan and learn a trade. And you signed up typically for, I think it was seven or eight years. And you essentially belonged to this person, whether it was a silversmith or a, uh, you a know. A road a maker or. Yeah boot maker or something yeah. like that. Right, exactly. And he tried, I think he did a guy who made knives and he did it for about three days and said, I can't stand this either. <laughs> and as you mentioned earlier, his father kind of took him on a tour of Boston saying, look at all these things people do to make a living. Um, and in those days and age, of course, it was mostly. And, and can you just, how old was he? Sorry to interrupt, but how old was he when he was on yeah. this tour? He was 10, right? He was 10. With his right. dad. So he was making a career choice then, and that was typical. I mean, it wasn't special. You kind of got told what to do at a young age. What was atypical was he was in on the process. He got to have a say in the decision. Uh, he could he could say no thanks or or well, he didn't. He kind of get cajoled into into being an apprentice to his brother. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. His brother was a printer. And, and after this series of dropping out of schools and not working at the knife guy, uh, his father essentially said, you're going to go work for your brother now and, mm-hmm. you know, you'll come out a printer. He wanted to be a sailor, Ben Franklin. That's, that's right. And, you know, for me, that's, you know, if you want to go ship out, it's really saying, you know, get me out of here. I want my freedom as much as I love the ocean. You know, it's yeah. like the romantic escape. And he wasn't going to be allowed to do that. So I went and worked for his brother. And, and printing in those days was not only making the ink and setting the paper and working the presses, but you often were responsible for the content. You actually wrote the articles. 
so the kind of reporter printer were the same hack. Yeah. yeah. And so Franklin started doing that and, and taught himself how to write um, in order to be able to be a printer. And, you know, I, it sounds, I bet, to your listeners like long ago and far away, I think one of the theses of the book is we all do that in a way is you, you know, the cliche is you find your passion, but you, whatever it is you're interested in, if you're lucky and work at it, you figure out how to do it. It helps to have teachers and people who've done it before, but you don't, you don't get there just by kind of getting in line (laughs) and being inoculated, you know? Um, So, you know, that's why I think these stories are still pertinent is that what Franklin said was, I got to be a good writer I got to be able to persuade people. Um, I got to be able to take apart an argument and explain it to someone. And he just set out to do it. He'd read, um, you know, recommended essays and say, "How did this person do this?" And would then often try to rewrite the essay in his own language to figure out if he really understood it. And it was, you know, the for Henry Ford, the story I always like was. He would go out on Sundays when everybody else was in church and the machines were abandoned in the farm fields and it'd take apart a farmer's machine, betting he could get it back together before they were out of church. (laughs) And in that way, he would learn about machinery. Yeah. Uh, And Ben Franklin essentially did the same thing, which is he took apart people's writing to try to figure out how to um, how to do it. Yeah. Came very good at it. And I one of the things that I love that he did, and I feel like this is really relevant to Certainly my, my youngest would, I guess, so I'll go back. What, what I love that Ben Franklin did was he, he started to, if he was mad or annoyed about his situation, he, he tried to kind of influence it with, with like he would make pamphlets written by, or letters, right? Written by the widow silence do good. And he did such a good job of sounding like a widow with, with these particular sort of situations with her, you know, she had a son that she was thinking about sending to Boston Latin. And, and, and she, I feel like that was the one where she sort of dreamed that, that she, she, he's able to really make fun of all of these institutions that bug the crap out of him, you know, through, through his writings. And, And I think about my, especially my younger son, because all through his life, he'll, like he was the kid who I'd say, if you say poopy one more time, you are in big trouble. And he'd go, okay, mom, I won't say poopy anymore. <laughs> like, he just, right. you know, he'd turn it back on, on, on itself. And, uh, and I feel like that's, that was the kind of thing that I thought Ben Franklin was doing as well. Well, yeah. and it's, it's often hard to find, I think in, you know, writing about education and about child rearing, how important fun is. That yes. you actually have fun doing it, and and how important it is that it be funny as yes. well, that there be some humor to it. And if you if you you know you, I picked out these people who got famous and are well known, but when they talk about their education, that tends to be what they remember. You know, Elvis Presley just loved singing. It was just it was his idea of heaven to be able mm-hmm. to sing, and you couldn't steer him away from it. Yeah, well, you know, once he got a taste of it. And, and, and I think the trouble often we find in organized education is that they're busy trying to steer you away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Busy, it's not you know, your agenda. It's their agenda. Exactly. And if what you really want to do is watercolor, they go, well, that's good. We have an art class once a week. 
for, for 45 minutes and you can do it, you know, it's killing the yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. Not to be able to do more. I, I am sympathetic. It's, it's hard to impossible to organize a school where everybody got to watercolor as much as they wanted. At the same time, I think we lose sight of the fact that that really is how we learn what we need to know. Yeah. Is through the fun of it and the passion for it and the giggling that goes along with it. Yeah, so true. I think about, I mean, we, we started homeschooling because school made, made my oldest, we used to say that he was allergic to school. He kind of had post-traumatic stress syndrome. I won't really, you know, the purpose of this isn't to talk about how great homeschooling is, but, but we did it because we wanted some creativity for, we wanted them to be able to have a more, more of a say in how they kind of spent their days. And I feel like for kids who are in school, one of the things I want, one of my goals for this podcast is, you know, not everybody is enamored of homeschooling. Not everybody would do it even if they could. And there's got to be a way to help, you know, for people who, who like what you can still do stuff with your kids outside of school, you know, to, to help foster their creativity and, and that kind of stuff. And, um, pardon me. What I, what I love about, um, just moving on a little bit to Rachel, Rachel Carson is that she, like she and her mom, her mom would sort of say, okay, well don't go to school today. (laughs) That's all right. And, and they would stay home and she would, she would have kind of these, complete opposite of school experiences out in the out in the wilds and writing stories with her mom and just just a beautiful relationship you know and i don't know did you see it that way as well or yeah absolutely her mom (laughs) had been a a school teacher um until she got married back in those days your listeners may not know this you couldn't be married and be a school teacher and and just a reminder these days are what rachel carson was was born in 1907, I feel like, 1903. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. And, and that had been true earlier as well. I mean, the theory was that if you had a, a husband and kids, that's where your duty lay, not teaching. Yeah. So once you got married, you weren't supposed to be in the schools anymore. So her mom got married and had uh, three kids, Rachel being the youngest, and, um, you know, became what would now call a stay-at-home housewife. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have much money or anything. Um, but she, this, this interest in education and in learning stayed with her. And I, you know, you don't, you don't unfortunately get Rachel Carson's mother's story because she didn't leave it. Um, but clearly it was a, you know, talk about fun. Her idea of fun was helping her kids in Rachel's case, you know, walk up the side of the mountain they lived on and discover birds nests and be able to name them and be able to write about them and be able to draw them. And, you know, if it meant missing school to do that, you know, as a school teacher, she knew that this was more important. Yeah. yeah. And then, and sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Right. Go I, ahead. I, I was just going to say, and then it's, it seems like what kind of happened for, for Rachel. And, and this, by the way, I guess if people don't know, this is Rachel Carson, the, the author of, of several books, uh, just a passionate scientist and environmentalist and a person who... She one of the books that she's most famous for is a book called Silent Spring, which is about like the just the poisoning of our environment by by chemicals and pesticides and 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 just the the problems that come with. And I haven't read it, but I mean, it sounds like a real passionate uh, yeah, plea yeah. for let's let's make this not happen anymore. Yeah, it's mid 1960s. It was when John F. Kennedy was president, and it you know people call it the beginning of the modern environmental movement. Because yeah. it was the first person who did the science, not only did the science, but then made a public plea 
that got people's attention and became a popular issue. Yeah, and yeah. she she died of breast cancer, right? She right. right. And which I mean, it could be argued that she got that from from her environment growing up. But I was thinking too about how like her mother really encourages, and she she got such a great introduction to just the wilds and writing, the importance of both of those things, like our, our natural world and writing. And by the time she was in high school, she, she was really serious about being a good student. And, and it was almost like she needed those formative years of carefree, kind of very do what you want, like follow your own ideas about what education is. And then when she got older, she, she turned those into a real kind of juggernaut for, for, for national political environmental change. Right. And she went on, you know, I think part of her motivation and, and people I'm sure know this is true, is that school was a way to get out. I mean, uh, school, of, a... school, of the town she was in, of the limited circumstances that, you know, looked like was going to be her future. Um, you know, in her town, which is you know, near Pittsburgh, very industrialized all around there. She was essentially going to work in a factory or be married to someone who worked in the factory uh, of one kind or another. There was, there were coal mines, there was aluminum factories, there was, um, uh, you know, yeah. energy plants and stuff there. Oil she, refineries. Exactly. So she, oh, are you there? She had this very kind of limited future. Rachel Carson, uh, for her, I think writing was more of a means to an end in a way. I think her, her real passion was nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she realized that the way to kind of uh, not only make that a career, she didn't think that as a kid, but to, to connect to it in a way that other people could share was to be able to write about it. Yeah. So, you know, again, I think it's the, the pleasure and the passion that gets the kid first. And then, you know, this other stuff becomes tools to get there. I mean, I, I could argue, and I kind of do in the book, that what Ben Franklin was really interested in was rebellion. Yes. You know, and he there he was, he, he didn't want to be a colony of England anymore, and he, you know, he wanted to try to help that, and reading and writing seemed like a way towards it. Yeah, and you can even see that with, with the widow Silence Do Good. I mean, he he used her to to start people talking, if not in a rebellious way, certainly in a, in a what's the word, sub- subversive kind of way. Right, right. So, you know, I think that maybe too often as parents we go, you know, this kid has got to learn how to do their multiplication tables when if and, and stop playing with the frogs, which seems to be their main interest. Yeah. But but that in fact, if you let them run with the frogs some and, and you know, stay with the thing they care a lot, they realize, geez, I better learn multiplication tables if I'm going to figure out the science that'll help me get closer to frog yeah, or whatever it is. That's so, and um, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I just, you know, I, again, I think it's often out of kind of wanting to protect our kids and, and guarantee them a future that we say, uh, you know, you've got to learn the multiplication tables. In yeah. fact, we're probably helping them more if, if we can get over our own hangups about it. Yeah. And and let them pursue some of the stuff they really care about because they'll they'll eventually get to the thing that you think is so vital. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. And I'm wondering, how did you, Daniel Wolf, learn what you needed to know? And I guess what did you what did you find that you needed to know, and how did you learn it? 
Ah, that's not fair. This book isn't about me. <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I I uh, started to write as a young kid, and I would, you know, be in the back of math class writing epic poems to myself mm-hmm. instead of paying attention to math class. Um, it never, it really never occurred to me that it was a possibility of something to do with your life because, I mean, writers were a whole different breed as far as I was concerned. But I, you know, it was like I couldn't get over it. I kept wanting to do that. So Mm -hmm. um, I never studied it. I didn't go to writing class. I didn't, you know, I didn't do any of those things. I didn't get a degree in it or any of that. Mm -hmm. In fact, I kind of protected it from that in a lot of ways. Made sure that no one was trying to teach me it because this was the stuff I wanted to learn on my own. Wow. I mean, Um, you almost kept it hidden. Yeah, I mean, you know, I shared the writing with people, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, I don't even know quite how to say this. I didn't want to learn how to, how other people did it. I wanted yeah. to learn how I wanted to It's do. almost like something welling up from inside you. You don't need somebody else to tell you how to do this. You just need the time right. and space to be able to really do it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, you know, I I have friends who are really good cooks, and they they love cookbooks, and they... You know, they love having a recipe, but when as soon as they can, they're rolling on their own on this. Yeah, yeah. You want to you want to see what happens when you try that spice instead of this one. Or exactly, whatever. exactly. And that's their that's their kind of the the fun again. The payoff is, well, you know, what if I put mango in there? You know, and yeah. and suddenly they have a whole other dish. Well, yeah. I, that's sort of how I felt. I mean, and uh, you know, when it comes to writing and and in a lot of things, you learn from the people who have done it really well. Mm-hmm. And so you, so you study of, them? Yeah, you you read something and you go, gee, that's great. How did they do that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's Ben Franklin a little bit again. You know, you take it apart and try to figure out how they, I wasn't as disciplined as he was, but, um, you know, you try to figure out how people did it. And, and that's true, I think, whether it's designing a car or uh, a dress or whatever, you kind of, you have some heroes, and you try to figure out how you, how they did it, and yeah. how you can do it. Help them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Did you now? Actually, I, I wrote this question before I realized that you, you. I mean, your kids were pretty well grown by the time you had written this book. But my question was: Did writing this book affect your parenting at all? And if not, I mean, because it seems to me like learning about your your sort of career. You have. I mean, you've written books on musicians. You've. You've you've produced documentaries, you've done all these incredible things like doing, the, did the doing of any of those things when the kids were young, did it affect your parenting at all? Well, Does that make sense? Is I, that yeah, a- it, yes, it makes sense. And I think it's a kind of two way street. I mean, one thing is my wife is a choreographer and dancer. And so my kids saw two parents who were off pursuing the stuff they wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think that was a much bigger lesson than anything we could, "Quote unquote," teach, mm-hmm. they sort of went, you know. And uh, other kids grow up, and I'm sure some of your listeners feel this way and see their parents doing something they don't like, and mm-hmm. they go, well, I, "You know, I hope I can figure out a way where that doesn't happen, where I get trapped, you know, punching the clock from nine to five in a way that that means know, that they can't spend time with me." Kind of. I mean, it really. That's a lot of times with kids, it comes down to like, like I can remember when. Um, when my 14-year-old was five and, and he was in kindergarten and they were having this big spring 
Oh gosh, this adorable like spring uh, assembly, and and they all dressed up. They were they their class was singing about hibernation, and and he my son dressed up as a bat, and he was just adorable. And when my husband he he had, he had really high hopes. My husband had of coming, and and we didn't say to our our son, oh you know it's probably likely that your dad won't be there. We 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 somehow dropped that ball, and so I was there, and his little brother was there, but his dad wasn't there, and he just folded up. I mean. His, yeah. you know, um, like he just, I mean, what he took from that was my dad didn't have time. He couldn't get here. Like right. it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter why, but, uh, but I think that planted the seed for him that long ago of like, there's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> right. I'm not missing important stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing, I mean, this may be of interest to, again, the people listening with my oldest kid who is now an actor and always wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, in my memory is in kindergarten, it may have been first grade, he'd come home and his T-shirts were soaked in the front. And we'd go, we tried to figure out what this was about and finally realized that he was so anxious in school he was chewing yep. the front of his shirt. Um, and so both of us said, well, let's do something else. And part of what we kept proposing to him was homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And said, you know, how about this? Isn't this a solution to your problem? And he said, um, there's nobody else. If I learn at home, I can't do theater. And all this other stuff is worth it to me because they put on two plays a year at the school and I can be in them. Yeah. And I know that there are parents whose kids, for example, are football players. And they may want to homeschool, but their kid really wants to have a team and they can't. Yeah. They can't do it if they're homeschooling. So I think it ends up being a, a, a balance of that. And what you said earlier is really important, which is you do have from whatever it is, three in the afternoon mm-hmm. until bedtime, where you can supplement whatever's going on. Yeah. So if for financial reasons or, you know, these other reasons, you can't homeschool or you can't do that kind of thing. Or Montessori or something, these, yeah. Yeah, there are all these ways, it seems to me, that you can, you know, enrich and your kid's life. Uh, and, and there's yours, by the way. I mean, it's a lot more fun being a parent. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is a little bit of an aside, but do you ever... So I guess I've had some times where I've been trying to explain to my kids something or I've, I've, I've gotten a particular expression on my face. And I can see that from their expression, the, the way that I look is how, like, my mother looked when she was trying to explain... <laughs> whatever this thing was to me. And I just, I feel this real kind of connection. I think it's so strange that you have to go through the youth before you get to the wisdom. I don't know. There's just something so weird about it. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it, and I can't, I, in a way, I'm so looking forward to that for them, that when they're, when they're the parent, you know, or, or the uncle or whatever, that they will have this like, whoa, moment. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and he, it, absolutely. And you can't get that until you do it. I mean, talk about experiential education. <laughs> until you experience having a kid, you don't realize what your parents went through. Went through, yeah. To make it work. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you know, true. It sort of, it, it, I don't know if this is useful or not, but a, part of my sort of conclusion after, I don't know, I think my kids were sort of in middle school, which is a difficult time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I realized that really what I wanted to be was their grandparents. Yes. That, that the ideal parenting would be that kind of, you know how grandparents just 
love their grandkids and, and let them do what they want and don't worry the same way parents do about if they're all going to work out or yeah. they're going to get what they want. And I, I mean, I never really got there. But part of me thought, you know, the way to do this is just to treat them like grandchildren. They're these... Oh, that's a special, great idea. They're these special kids and they're going to be fine. You've lived long enough to realize they're going to make it. They'll do fine. Let them pursue what they want to pursue. I love that. So listeners... Think of them as your grandchildren. That is the best piece of advice I think I've ever heard about parenting because you do, you spend, when they're little, I mean, you, you just, every, every time, you know, they fall down or, or, or get their feelings hurt or, uh, you know, you can see something in them that they can't see themselves. And, and it's just so hard to pull yourself out of that. But if you think of, if you envision yourself as their grandparent, you could do it. Yeah, I think that's really cool. That's neat. Um, I I have to confess I've, I'm shifting subjects a little bit, but um, I've yeah. never been a lover of poetry. I mean, I th- I can think of I've always been a lover of songs, and I have a I have a real knack for like memorizing songs. So I guess right. that is a kind of poetry. But you've written several poetry books, right? Right, more than one. And yeah. and um, I, I talk about, talk about something that gets taught out of you in school. Yeah, seriously. I mean. It it is it is just deadly school because I mean if if your education was anything like mine, you come to English class and you'd read a poem, and the teacher would say, "So what do you think that means?" And there was a, the, the implication in their tone of voice was, "There's an answer to this. This is a code. Mm-hmm. This is a secret way of talking." And you'd say, "I think it's you know about a train." And they'd say, "Well, that's very good, but no, that's not quite." Right. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it was, and it was like, um, you know, it was a little bit like math, where, you know, there is an answer here if you work it out correctly. Poetry is, to me, you know, the the pleasure people get in pop music is the same they ought to get out of poetry, mm-hmm. which is, oh, this talks to me. This is I've been through this. This is what I've always wanted to say. Ideally, it's that, and it's open to the interpretation. Of anyone who hears it, there isn't a right answer for it, and it isn't scary. I think people are scared by poetry. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, both of those things are, are so true. I, I can remember. I only just now, in the last few years, have wanted to go back to a, a poem that that I, I had to read. I was sort of made to read in high school called, I think it's called the, the love story or something like that of J. Alfred Prufrock. Did you ever read that yeah. poem? Yeah, and yeah. and. For some reason, the lines, I mean, like, this is coming down through the years, right? Like, I was about 15 when I read this poem. And the line that keeps coming in and out of my head is, the women come and go, speaking of Michelangelo. Is is that yeah. that poem? And, and that's just... T.S. Eliot. That's right. It's T.S. And it's only now that I'm wondering, like, what is what does he mean by that? Like, in a way, because at the time I was so like, oh, God, stupid poetry, you know? Right, right. And it's really making me want to go back and read that. And I do, I think, I like... As having kids as a parent, I've now I never I wasn't exposed to where the sidewalk ends, like the Shel Silverstein uh, right, right, book right. or any of the other books. And those are such a great gateway into poetry. And I can see in my kids because they don't have this like, oh, it's poetry. So I'm not going to uh, they don't have a kind of hood that comes right. down over their heads about it. And um, they are they are moved by poetry. I mean, the, my um, my 10 year old will come up to me and he'll. He'll say, "Oh, mom, I just heard this really sad song. That it turns out it's a Minecrafting song, but it's about a sad event that happens in Minecraft. And somebody, uh-huh. I feel like somebody dies or something. And he is really moved by this. And I feel yeah. like that's the essence of poetry. It doesn't matter 
like if it's about a dog or not or a train it's it's what what do you get out of it how does it make you feel and yeah and i think lots and lots of kids um are open to it until it gets closed off to them in other words you know whether it's a song or you know it's just somebody who can say something so clearly and so beautifully that you're moved by it you know that's that's like saying you know that's a great looking tree over there i like that tree you know it it's um it's it i want to say it's a natural reaction i think it is for a lot of kids to think that language can be a cool thing yeah and playful so we, and we, yeah and we get it turned off um but you know you should go back to mr Elliot. he's pretty good yeah <laughs> maybe, I, you can, maybe maybe you can turn it back on i agree i think i i think i will i mean i just and and on that note i i mean i know it's not t.s Eliot like book but i'd love it if you could share a little bit about your latest book because it's a volume of poetry right yeah a volume of poetry called the names of birds and it is about just what it says it's about it it's it, um sort of set up where you go out in the world and there is, you know, it has to do with learning. There is all this science and knowledge and nomenclature for birds. And you go out and you see a red bird with a crest and it looks beautiful. And you try to understand how you're sharing the world with it. And then eventually it comes to you that this is a cardinal. And it probably there's some information about this bird out there and you find it. So the poems are really about um, perception and how you look at the natural world and learn about it and learn what other people have learned about it. Hmm. I feel like there's a kind of thread that runs through all, I mean, all the works that I've read, but even the ones that I've read about, that's like, what what is our place in this world, whether that world is America as a nation or Asbury Park, New Jersey, or... um, you know, out in nature looking at birds. I, do you think that's true? Do you feel like there's yeah. a thread? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, I mean, I think we, a lot of us share that thread, which is, you know, what are we doing here? What what should we be doing to help other people in the world out? And um, you sort of figure from there, and whether it's, you know, Asbury Park's a good example. Bruce Springsteen is why I got interested in Asbury Park. Mm-hmm. That, that was the poetry. I went, oh, my God, what is this place he's yelling about that sounds so cool yeah and then I, then i went to the place and decided no i can write a book about the history of this thing i want to know more about it yeah and that's again getting attracted by the the beauty and it's what draws you right it's it's i mean if you think about it from from the perspective of a, of a child whose whose education is beginning however whatever however we define that what attracts them what makes what are they drawn to and right you know and how how can we foster that so that they end up doing what they love for their whole lives, like like I hope, like you have. I mean, I th- it sounds like like you have. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I do, I do want to say since this, so this doesn't sound like all sort of flowers and prettiness. <laughs> yep. But the, the flip side of that is you you often have to fight pretty hard to get to the thing you want to do, mm-hmm. and if there a lot of forces. You know, often in the in in uh, how Lincoln learned to read, it's school itself, which is saying to you, you know, you really shouldn't be spending the time doing that. But it can be, you know, politics. It can be social pressure, whatever it is. Where, you know, you, do you really want to write poetry? Don't you know that sissy stuff? Yeah, this, you'll never make a learning doing that, a living doing that. Yeah, there's so there's a lot of fight that gets you the space so you can pursue what you want, and I. 
you know, I hope part of what I could do as a parent was to say to my kids, you know, you're, this isn't all going to be a bed of roses. You're going to have to fight to get the space to do the thing you want to do. Yeah, yeah. And to have to have you, to have their parent as an ally in that fight, rather than having you saying, well, it's really better for you to learn your multiplication tables. They're going to take you further than, right. than writing poetry or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's a hard thing to do. Parenting yeah. is a hard thing to do. Yep, <laughs> yep. And I hope that, I, you know, I think a book like yours could could help, could really help people kind of, formulate in their own mind because I think before they go out into the world of like daycare providers and teachers and people who maybe don't have the same goals for your child as as you do or that your child necessarily does for him or herself you know for you to be able to say well all right I'm looking at this situation and it's not in my kid's best interest so how do I how do I make it you know how can I shift it a little bit or who can I work with right. or, or right, whatever right, exactly. so. how do you maneuver through it yeah, yeah, exactly, because it really is a journey. So, and yeah. you, so you'll be in Boston in May doing some readings from the book. Are you going on like a tour? Yeah, I'm going to be on the West Coast at the end of April and come back here and do Boston and New York and um, I don't know a couple other places. Oh, that yeah. sounds cool. That's is there yeah. a way that listeners could get in touch with you or find out about things like where you'll be on tour if they want to if they want to come and and hear you read? Sure. The publisher is called Four Way Books, like a four way stop. Okay. Uh, and Four Way Books has a website that'll list all the events I'm going to be doing. I, you know, it'll be through the fall anyway, probably in one way or another. Cool. I'd love people to come and say hello and say you heard about it here. I will provide a link in the show notes to that. So if Great. you, you know, if people want to come in and come out and meet Daniel Wolf and listen. And I think with that, I think we'd better wrap it up. Friends, you've been listening to episode six of We Turned Out Okay. I hope today's show gave you a little bit of inspiration, a new idea to try, or a new step to take to help your kids in life or just have fun with them. And if so, if you liked it and you think other parents just like you would like it, please truck on over to iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review. The more five-star reviews we get, the more people we can reach, and suddenly everybody's using the best of old-school parenting, and life is great. If you can, please support the show in this way. For notes from today's episode, to check out the blog, or to contact me, our contact page is up and working now, so if I, if I can help you with something, which I'd love to do, or if you just want to say hello, please head over to weturnedoutokay.com. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook slash weturnedoutokay. I'm on Twitter at StoneAgeTechie, spelled T-E-C-H-I-E. I'm working on getting the Y ending, but I don't have it yet, over on Twitter. And I want to say a special thanks today to our producer, the man who's comfortable in every room of our home, but especially the bedroom, 17-time winner of the Husband of the Year Award, Benjamin Culp. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to We Turned Out Okay. I want to date to Australia. Find us on the web at weturnedoutok.com, where you'll find show notes and more. What do you call cheese that's not yours? Nacho cheese. And remember, we only go around once. To be the best parents we can be, let's relax and enjoy the ride. 
Derp, 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 derp,